Hey, we all at some point feel like we've got a hurricane just raging within us sometimes. And, and, and sometimes we even feel maybe captivated or captive, you know, in that, the eye of that storm and whatever challenges of life we're in. Um, today's guest has faced many battles, many storms, literally, um, but battles within herself really, and, and faced some tragedy and faced some trauma in her life and, and overcome those things. And in fact, she is the author of a book called the hurricane within, which we will talk about, but, uh, I want to introduce you to Ashley Leppert, who spent 14 years of active duty in the United States coast guard, became a qualified flight mechanic and flight mechanic instructor. Um, she received, this is pretty cool. Uh, really cool. She received the air medal, uh, for her heroic efforts during hurricane Harvey. So, she was with us right here in our great city of Houston, Texas, back in 2017 and did some amazing work during Hurricane Harvey. Uh, but hey, we're going to brag on her for a second because she was honored as the guest of President Trump's first State of the Union address. And I watched that and I remember and getting a standing ovation and there's a picture in her book and, and just watch. I just get chills like thinking about just some of the honor that was involved and just how big that moment could have been. But formally, I would like to welcome Ashley Leppert to the show. Thanks so much for having me, John. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're you're now in the in the great state of Florida. Am I correct? Yes, sir. Loving the uh, Emerald Coast over here. Oh, man, I love it over there. Destin, Florida. Um, you know, you you wrote this book. Uh, I read the book and, you know, just kind of on my on the edge of my seat through like three fourths of it. So I don't really appreciate that. Like, I don't appreciate <laughs> you making me go through this moment of, OK, what's happening next? OK, I got to read the next chapter. OK, I'll be done after this chapter. So, yeah, thanks a lot for that. Um, <laughs> but but maybe just kind of talk about that because I want to dig into some maybe deeper, heavier topics here in a minute. But just sure. talk about why you wrote that book and just kind of some of the cool stuff you encountered along that journey. Absolutely. So um, for me, when I got back from all the hurricane rescues, um, I was dealing with PTSD and not really realizing that that's what I was going through. Um, there were some situations throughout my life, as you read in my story, mm -hmm. um, that I really didn't deal with. I sort of compartmentalized a lot of those traumatic events. And so when I got home from the hurricane stuff, I thought, what better way than to do some therapy by myself is just, I got on my laptop and I just started typing and I, I wasn't ready to talk to a person necessarily about some yeah. things going on in my life, but um, that was the first step. And um, I had a really amazing friend. Her name is Katie. She actually just graduated from Naval Flight School. She's an awesome friend and she mm -hmm. really helped me fine tune my story and my words. And she said, Ashley, you know, you're going to inspire people with this. And mm. of course, I was completely terrified to put my personal life on a public scale like that through a book. But, you know, the wonderful feedback that I've gotten from, you know, being able to help people and inspire people is, um, you know, it kind of makes all that fear sort of dissipate really quick. Right, right. I mean, I mean, I know, I mean, coming from a fellow writer, I, I get it, you know, sometimes things are just better on paper. And um, so I, I, I wanted to, I was curious. So tell the audience, just for those that don't know, what was your role 
as you know in the Coast Guard and, and on those sort of the rescue missions that you went on like what what is the role of the flight mechanic the, the flight mechanic and I guess that was your title your formal title Sure. Yeah. So the Coast Guard is sort of a different service as in terms of we fix the aircraft we fly on. Um, a lot of other branches, they have contractors or, or other people that fix and, and maintain the aircraft components. But um, my personal job was an avionics electrical technician, which means anything navigations, communications, I was in charge of uh, maintaining, troubleshooting, inspecting, all of that. However, whenever we were on call for a 24-hour shift, we had a position of um, a flight mechanic. So you have your mm -hmm. pilot, your co-pilot, your flight mechanic, and your rescue swimmer. So I was the flight mechanic, which means during a flight phase, I'm in charge of radio calls, keeping the pilots in a correct hovering position whenever we, you know, retrieve, um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> excuse me, retrieve somebody from the water or whatever platform we're helping somebody, um, you know, saving their life from basically. Um, mm -hmm. So it's kind of uh, the middleman of, the whole flying evolution truthfully so um that was my job i did that and then eventually became a flight mechanic instructor which is the point where i got to train other people to go out and mm. save lives which was honestly my most you know fruitful and favorite part about my job yeah i mean i, I mean reading the book it's it's crazy to think i mean just some of the experiences you went through but starting kind of at the beginning a little bit and and you know not to go completely you know in the weeds on it um because i don't know how comfortable you are sharing but obviously you battled some sexual assault in your teenage years um you were in a home where there was some addiction um then later in your life discovering you've got an immune deficiency and a neuromuscular disease so you had every opportunity to bug out on life, on family, on job. What kind of kept you going, you know, as we talk about your teenage years and early adulthood, like what kind of kept you going throughout some of these setbacks? Well, to be honest with you, you know, everybody can relate. You know, my personal testimony is very much similar to a lot of people in the world. You know, we all deal with things, whether it be in our personal life or professional life and um, for me personally, my foundation of my faith as a Christian um, truthfully has saved me from the ledge many a times, just knowing that I had the creator of the earth on my side. I mean, that's such a powerful thing. And to actually see him working, not only knowing that statement, but to actually watch God work in my life. And um, so the second part of that is, I'm sure a lot of military and first responders will agree, but you ask me to go save somebody else, I'm there, I'm on it. I'm, I'm running to help somebody else, but to save yourself and to help yourself is, is quite a struggle and a challenge. So I found that my biggest outlet and my best therapy and helping myself was ultimately helping other people. And that became a way of me just to, um, you know, help my community. And it also, in turn, it actually helped me be able to connect with people that have also been through the same struggles and knowing that, hey, we're all in this together. There's storms of life, no matter who you are or where you live. And if we can all find that common denominator, we can really help each other out in the world. Yeah. I mean, 100% agree with that. I, you know, so 
you started out in the Detroit area, am I right? For when you in your career with the Coast Guard, and then yes, moved to then moved to New Orleans. Um, uh, so talk about, I, and then this is kind of where the the story got interesting, right? I mean, you started noticing some things about your body, right? Just that performance issues and just things like CrossFit wasn't quite one day just wasn't working out. Um, talk about some of the, and I, you know, it's confusing for you, I'm assuming, but just the craziness of medical community being so unsure. Like we think they know everything. Let's, let's be honest. There's some, a lot of stuff they don't know. And I give them a little grace because it's the human body can't know everything, but talk about some of your challenges with that down in new Orleans, when you were dealing, when you first discovered this disease. Sure. So, I mean, for me and anybody out there that has struggled with trying to diagnose an autoimmune condition, they know how hard that can be um, because one day you could be feeling great. And then the next day, you know, it's hard for you to chew your own food. I mean, it was such a weird thing for me. And the hardest part for me was I had just transferred from Detroit down to New Orleans. So that's a very highly stressful time. You know, you're picking up your entire life and you're starting new. And so for me, it was very easy to chalk everything up to stress. Oh, I'm just tired because of stress or, oh, you know, my muscles are feeling extra fatigue because of stress. And then, um, you know, I was doing a lot of trying to self-diagnose, you know, changing my diet, adding supplements in there, doing different workouts. And, um, you know, some of it helped and others didn't. And it wasn't until I was actually flying in the hurricanes and I felt a stress in a, you know, a little of terror that I've never felt before. And that, you know, your body reacts to that. So when I came home from all of that, that's when I realized, okay, I need to actually go to a doctor and start the whole trying to figure this out thing. So it was, it was scary, but, um, you know, I'm just thankful that I had a diagnosis and I wasn't crazy. You know, you start to feel crazy for a while, like what's wrong with me. So I'm just thankful that I felt a relief upon my diagnosis. Especially when you're not getting confirmation from professionals who are supposed to know what they're talking about and know what's wrong with you, right? You want answers. And so yeah. nobody's confirming what you really knew deep down in you that something wasn't right. We know our bodies and it didn't come till later, like, right, to get an actual diagnosis. So I don't even know how long did you have symptoms before you started, before you actually pinpointed I would say it was um, just over two years. I was trying to figure this out on my own and um, you know, nothing against doctors. My professional doctors right. did an amazing job doing what they could do. But what I've learned is the medical community is, is bogged down They're They have a lot of work on their, on their hands. So, you know, when they get done with work, they're not going home and reading these new thick manuals with all the most up-to-date information. So you have to be proactive for your own health and your own body to do research. I mean, it's a team effort. You can't just willy nilly walk into the doctor and just say, Hey, this is what I'm dealing with. I mean, you have to be proactive and Hey, this is what I've been feeling, but Hey, I've, I've tried this. I've done this. I've worked on, you know, I think I'm a big proponent of holistic um, options, um, which I know are it's kind of counterintuitive in the, in the medical field, but I mean, certain things like chiropractic care, acupuncture, massage therapy. I mean, those holistic measures are truthfully what have helped me the most with, with what I've been going through. So um, I think yeah. the biggest takeaway that I would love to share is that it's, it's a team effort. Your body is your body and you have to be, 
you have to have the wherewithal to research it and find out what's best for you um, and help your doctor to help you. Yeah. Yeah. So I like how you said that because really and truly it, you're living testimony that certain maybe unconventional methods worked right for you. So we don't always have to stay trapped in this box of this works. This is what we've always done. So, <clears throat> excuse me, fast forward. So you're, you're carrying around this emotional baggage of what's wrong with my body <clears throat> and you enter into 2017 August 27th, in fact, my birthday is the only reason I remember that. So you were in Houston for Hurricane Harvey on that day. And that's when your life, I hate to say, got exciting, more exciting, but I, it got crazy. Um, <clears throat> and I can only imagine some of the sleep deprivation added to your immune deficiency as well, or just your body taking its toll on. Um, man, when you got to Houston, <clears throat> Beaumont, you know, and you start coming into town and it's just, it's a grease fire, uh, in the entire Metro area. What shocked you most about maybe that day or even just that mission in general? I think what shocked me the most is we really didn't know what to expect. Obviously we knew that people were going to be in trouble and that we were going to be rescuing them, but in most typical hurricane fashion, they hit the coast and the power dissipates. The hurricane slowly goes away. Well, as you know, Hurricane Harvey just sat and sat and sat and nobody, including the rescuers, expected that. So what I like to convey is the biggest thing that I remember is even though we were being the rescuers and the first responders, we were also staying there, living there. We were sleeping on you know, at one point I found a table or a couch and we had our wet flight suit still. I mean, we were in a rescue situation ourselves and we put all that aside because that's what we do. And we put our personal needs on the back burner to save others. And I just remember flying around and just praying and being like, Lord, help me help these people. Give me the eyes to see the people that need rescuing. Give me the strength to get these people into the helicopter and to a, a safe landing zone. I mean, it just, it was quite terrifying and overwhelming. And not to mention we're flying in a new space that we're unfamiliar with. I mean, our training is very um, standard across the board, but we knew New Orleans. We could fly yeah. where the heads were in New Orleans, but as far as Houston was, we really didn't have that sort of, um, you know, background of, of knowing where all that stuff was. So it really just took a team effort of being very vigilant, being bold in our, you know, commands with the pilot and the flying and, and just everything. It was, um, it was overwhelming, but I just felt the, the calming peace of God with me throughout it all, which helped me. Yeah. I mean, so yeah. what I hear you say is you guys weren't flying to Dallas at night to a five-star hotel in, in the comfort creature comforts, right? You were in the junk with everybody and you're living this. So your empathy level obviously goes through the roof. Your just survival instincts have to take over like your training, like all that, everybody in the military knows first responders know you just, you don't really think your training just kicks in, your adrenaline kicks in and you go do the job and then you can deal with yourself and, how you decompress and just your exhaustion later, right? That we don't have time for Absolutely. that. So during that time, like what surprised you most about yourself? Like along that, those couple of days where you're just taxed 
day in and day out, hour in and hour out? You know, honestly, I think what fed me for those three, four days was pure adrenaline. I mean, quite honestly, I mean, it's hard to sleep and it's hard to think about yourself knowing that there's people that are standing in waist deep water, that there's people sitting on the roof waiting to be rescued. I mean, that's what kept me going personally. And I, I think I can speak for the rest of the, the people that were there is, you know, we are trained to put ourselves last. We're trained, we're service to community, not service to self. So for me, it was pure adrenaline. And when I came home, the decompression honestly was something that I had never experienced before. I mean, I just wanted to sit in my quiet house. I didn't turn the TV on. I didn't want to talk on the phone. I didn't want to listen to music. I literally just wanted to be in peace and quiet because it was such, um, you know, sensory overload out there that I just really wanted to, you know, not hear or see anything. Um, but, you know, thinking back to it as well, the Coast Guard does such a great job at standardization. We had pilots and flight mechanics and rescue swimmers from all over the country come in there. And we hopped in a helicopter. Some of us didn't know each other. And we went out there and we crushed it. We nailed the job because we all were trained the same exact way. And that's, to me, the beauty of what unfolded there is we just did it seamlessly. Nobody got hurt. And we were able to execute the job and save lives. Yeah. And you can, I mean, the rotations just swap in and out and the beauty of the training and Coast Guard structure is that you can just fold that in and not miss a beat. And, and I, I thought it was cool that you got to see some of your old friends from Michigan that came in to help, right? You got to fly with some of those folks. Um, how many, not that you know a number, but I would imagine not just your crew, there's a ton of people doing what you're doing all throughout the city of Houston at that time, correct? And what people yes. don't understand or maybe they do, but I mean, you're flying around in the storm and power lines are everywhere. And you've, it's not that you just kind of go over, see somebody drop a basket, get them, take them to safety. Like there's some maneuvering. There's some, like, we can't get close to this line. Like we can't drop it in this, like your needle in a haystack trying to find people. Um, man, did you, God, I'm just, it's crazy, but was there, was there a moment in all that chaos? And I remember reading the book and parts of it where, you know, you, you felt like in the moment where your, your body kind of lost toward the end, you, you kind of lost your ability to strength, you know, pull somebody in, but you, you said a prayer in that moment and just God gave you the strength. But aside from that moment, did, was there any moments that you were just like, hundred percent sure God showed up. Like you just, you just felt the presence overwhelming. Any encounters like that spiritually? Yes. You know what? I, um, that's why I'm so bold in my faith. It's not because I believe in this imaginary God who has done something in my life that I haven't seen. No, I have literally watched him pull me out of trouble, harm's way. For one example, um, during the hurricanes, we had just rescued, I think a dozen people. There was like a dozen people in our small little helicopter cabin and we were on our way to a landing zone. And again, we have low visibility. We have hurricane force winds. I mean, it, it was terrifying. And we were just saying a little prayer, like, you know, Lord, if it's my time to go, that's okay. But Lord, please, let's get these people to safety. I was just more concerned about our, our members or, our, you know, survivors that we just saved. And I happened to glance out the cabin window to the right and it was almost like the clouds had parted and God had showed me a little window 
of visibility and I saw a huge cross. And I'm sure now that, you know, you living in Houston area, you know exactly which huge cross I'm talking about, but there was a church um, and the name is, you know, a miss at the moment, but that huge cross was just happened to be right there as I was praying. And I, you know, somehow went into my flight bag and I grabbed my phone real quick and I took a picture because that was a moment where God came through. And it reminded me of Joshua 1, 9, where it says, you know, have I not commanded you? Do not be afraid. I'm here with you. And in that moment, I, I mean, I just felt all my fear leave me because I knew that he was with me and our crew and he was going to get everybody there safe. I mean, wow. Like, I mean, we all need moments of confirmation. And I think we don't necessarily take notice of some of those. I think he's kind of feeding those to us regular and we're just kind of distracted and going through our motions and we don't catch it. But that one was hard to miss. Like Absolutely. that was him just kind of stamping that moment in time for you and, and letting you know, look, I got this. I got you. Yes, sir. Um, I got these people. Um, and you keep talking about putting others first and you guys being last. It's kind of interesting that behind me, there's some last in line stuff and that's the name of the show so you know you're trained in the military i would assume all branches are trained first responders are trained to put others first like you guys are last and, and it, that's a biblical out of mark 9 35 it talks about he who wants to be first will be last and the last will be first so man i think it's awesome that that all the military can all sort of agree on that one thing and and you were living it um man so Dealing obviously with that neuromuscular disease and, and, you know, your the emotional effects you mentioned after you kind of unwound yourself emotionally and decompressed, when did you sort of come to terms with this, this is PTSD or did you get a actual diagnosis or is that just something you had to get to on your own and embrace and deal with and talk to the listeners about that? Absolutely. So, you know, for me, you hit the nail on the head. We always put ourselves last in line um, as far as the military and serving others. But what I learned throughout this whole experience is in the real world, the real bravery comes from putting yourself first at times, yeah. because it's honestly the hardest thing for, for some people to do. And I was having nightmares. I was having, I was very reclusive. I mean, I'm a very outgoing person. I love hanging out and being around my friends. And I found myself you know, avoiding going out. I just wanted to be alone, drink alone. I was having nightmares. And if I'm being hundred percent honest with you, I was nervous to say anything a, because I didn't want to be labeled as, Oh, she's just a sensitive female. You know, I, that's truthfully what first came to mind is I didn't want to be looked at as weak. And then the second thing was I didn't want my career to end. I knew that with the autoimmune thing and the PTSD, it was probably going to happen, but you know, we're kind of taught in aviation, you know, to be strong and to get over it because any little thing will take away your flight, your flying status. Um, yeah. But the overall goal that I found out for myself was if I wanted to be the best person to serve others, whether it be my family, my friends, my significant other, my coworkers, I had to take care of myself first because when I wasn't okay and I was dealing with all this stuff, I wasn't being the best person to the people that I loved. Right. And so I, I did get a clinical diagnosis. I started going to counseling, which really helped me. I never thought I needed it, um, but clearly I did. It was just nice to offload all that internal stuff onto a stranger. 
without any judgments and confidentiality, of course. And then I started talking to people that I flew with and people that were out there during the hurricane. And they were like, yeah, I'm, I'm having nightmares too. And not all of them, but some of them were dealing with the same thing that I was and nobody was talking about it. And I was like, wow. well, we, we need to, we need to fix this. We need to be able to, you know, take care of ourselves so that we can take care of other people. Um, so I just learned the biggest bravery sometimes co- it comes from that vulnerability of saying, Hey, you know what? I need help. Yeah. I, a lot of people needed to hear that. I mean, I know, um, I, I would imagine that you're on this trail of advocacy for people in similar situations and speaking at places because you do speaking engagements. And, and I would imagine you're out to try to help those that are kind of following you along that path or ones that you were alongside that are maybe struggling that haven't quite come to terms with certain things. Um, you hit, you said something there about when you kind of just isolated during the process and, and I want to get a little personal for the audience because I think this could meet somebody where they are. Um, you, you got isolated. You come from a family of potential. You, you might be susceptible to some addictive traits and personality. Um, I know you mentioned your relationship with your mom throughout the book a little bit and some of her struggles and you guys, you know, reconciled and, and did some much needed communication along the process. Did you ever worry or did that ever trigger in your head that you were in a susceptible state from a self-medication standpoint? Absolutely. Honestly, I, it's very easy to not think there's a problem because, you know, drinking alcohol is, is celebrated. I mean, Hey, you want to go to the bar and have a beer? Hey, you want to come over and drink some wine? I mean, there's really not the negative connotation with it that, that could eventually snowball into a problem. Um, but again, you know, for me, I just had to recognize, like you said, Hey, this is something that is, could be genetic that I have to be very careful with not allowing that to be a crutch. And, um, you know, that was hard to, hard to come around to sometimes because I mean, I enjoy my wine, you know, and I still do to this day, but I've learned how to be, you know, a you know, just understanding the power behind it, responsible with it. Exactly. Yeah. Well, cause you were, I mean, let's face it. I, I come from a long line on, on that side, on a certain side of my family that we're sitting ducks. Like if we get ourselves into an environment emotionally or just secluded and start medicating, we, we could become that. Like it's very easy for folks, not that it couldn't be happening to anybody, but when you have it in your bloodline, it is hereditary potentially. So, I mean, it's, pretty responsible and mature. Like, I don't know that a lot of people get to a point within themselves, like you say you did, where you're like, okay, there's some triggers here that it's getting a little too frequent. And I see that this could go down a path. Um, what do you, what advice, like not everybody's as self-aware, right. And, uh, to, to be that responsible, what do you say to those people on certain triggers and signs that could get them to be like, uh Oh, let's, let's take this to somebody. Yeah, I, I would say my biggest piece of advice, again, I mean, I'm, I may be repeating myself a little bit here, but, you know, think about those people that love you. You know, that's, that's innately what kept me going is there were so many people that cared about me that I was brushing off that I wasn't, um, you know, being there for because of my, my internal struggles. So when it starts, I mean, I, there is a definition for alcoholism, I believe out there it was something along the lines of if it starts to affect your personal relationships, 
starts to affect your job, starts to affect your finances. If, if you choosing alcohol starts to affect any realm of your life, it's considered a problem. And what I've learned is the term alcoholism or having a problem with that doesn't just go away when you quit drinking. If you, that's what you decide, it's a constant, mm-hmm. um, you know, disease, if you will. I mean, it's something that you have to really focus on that that doesn't become a crutch and a God in my life and, and praying and seeing him move and give me strength. And, um, you know, I feel like it would almost be a disservice not to share that. I don't want to ever be that preachy kind of person, but, you know, quite right. frankly, it, for me and I, I see him in my life and and I just try to share that to, to everybody that I encounter yeah yeah I mean we got to make it about something bigger than us and we have to get to a place and like you always hear the rock bottom cliche but you got to get to a place where you're at the end of yourself almost or you realize that there's somebody bigger that can help you and you doesn't you don't have to do it alone like he's a father just like we're you know, it's like, I'm a parent. I don't want my kids to feel like they got to go through life all by themselves and neither does he. So yeah, I mean, we got to have that anchor and we got to go to him on a regular basis, but, uh, and I don't think that's preachy at all. So take that audience. If you don't like that, no. (laughs) Um, (laughs) so I would say, um, so your mom and, and you guys work things out, right. Reconciled. Um, did you, uh, did you have some heroes along the way? Like, did you have some people in your life that you pulled leadership qualities from resilience from um, just anybody that you kind of held in that high regard along the way that kind of besides your faith kind of were your anchors. You know, I, I have to say, and I know this probably sounds a little odd, but I gained a lot throughout my personal and professional life from those leaders who weren't the best from those people in my life that um, set a high standard for me that, you know, kind of made me mad. If I was slacking off, these people put me in check. And honestly, I feel like I gained so much from them. I mean, of course, the great leaders that I had, I mean, I had so many amazing chiefs and so many amazing friends in the, in the military and outside, but I gained so much wisdom and strength from the people that maybe weren't the best leaders because it taught me how I didn't want to lead people. And also it taught me um, to, to have a high standard for myself. And so, you know, putting that into a personal perspective, I was able to share that with people in my life, what I have gone through. And that's exactly why I'm going through and sharing my story with people is that, you know, on some sort of level, my story will relate to somebody and to help somebody. Um, That was well said. I, um, man, I got to know, you get this phone call and you tried to ignore the phone call. You did. It was an unknown (laughs) number. Um, we've all done this, but you get these solicitations, right? Um, you ignored it twice, maybe if I remember right. So when you answered it, finally tell the audience who was calling. So I was on the hangar deck that day working and I had my phone on silent and it kept vibrating and I would pull it out and it was an unknown number. I would ignore it, pull it out again, ignore it. Finally on the third try, I thought, okay, I'm annoyed. I need this person to stop calling. So I answered it and I kind of was a little bratty. I was like, hello. And on the other line was this like super friendly, cheerful voice saying, hi, this is so-and-so from the white house. I'm cordially inviting you um, to president Trump's state of the union. Or he, he, or she said, I'm, I'm calling on behalf of President Trump to invite you to, to be his honored guest at the 2018 State of the Union. 
And my first reaction was to look around on the hangar deck and like, who is playing a prank on me? What is happening? You're like, Katie, um, I don't have time for this. Click. Right. Um, yes. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, sure enough, uh, I got the invitation that day and it was uh, honestly the biggest honor. I think it took me a solid minute to respond because my jaw had dropped so far because I was like, what? <laughs> so, yeah. Wow. Well, take us through that. I mean, I'm not going to leave it right there. We got to hear more about this. So you go and it's his first state of the union address, right? I mean, I, I've never played in like a Super Bowl championship, you know, a Super Bowl game or a World Series game seven or anything like that. But being at the that event had to be right up there. So take us through some of the process, like just being in that room and then kind of what he, you know, a little bit about what he said and how you felt in that moment and just the crazy honor and humility that that must have felt. That's exactly what it was. It was such an honor. And I was so humbled to be there and to represent um, not only what me and my crews did, but what all of the Coast Guard did out there and first responders. Um, so basically what happened was is I got the call and I got the invitation, but it was very vague. I had no idea that I was going to be sitting front and center. I had no idea that I was even in his speech. Um, I thought I was going to be sitting back row peanut gallery somewhere, just like as a guest, like, oh, this is awesome. Which so is when still they start, pretty cool, right? Which is still right, pretty cool. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. But we got there. Um, we got a full tour of the entire White House. We got to see, you know, the history of, of different pieces of furniture and different rooms where different presidents spoke. And um, it was just, uh, it was an honor. We even got to go down to the presidential bowling alley and bowl for a little bit, which is awesome. Um, so we kind of did that. And then at the very end of the day, I think um, it was around eight or 9 PM is when we actually went to the Capitol building and we got to ride in Melania's um, motorcade, which was super cool. All the streets Whoa. were shut down and it was very amazing. And then um I think it wasn't until this moment that I realized, wait, am I a part of this? And like, what's happening? Because they took all of our cell phones and then they showed me where I was sitting, which was like front row on the top gallery next to vice president or I'm sorry, second lady, Karen Pence. And I was like, wow. And then she leaned over to me and was like, are you excited that you're in the speech? And I was like, what? And she was like, well, uh, and then I said, okay, well, if he talks about me, what do I do? Do I stand up? Do I sit down? Do, and she goes, the proper protocol is to stay seated because people give you the standing ovation or whatever. So at that wow. point, my nerves kicked in and I didn't know at what point he would talk about me, but sure enough, within the first five minutes of his speech, I, he spoke about me and I got a standing ovation. And I just remember in that moment, just thanking God so much, just like thank, like everybody's clapping. And I just sort of just gave it all to God again and just said, thank you, God, for this moment, because I had known right then and there that he had given me this platform, yeah. um, this little sliver of, you know, uh, my moment of fame, if you will. Yeah. And he was going to know that I was going to use that for his glory, which I've been trying to do ever since. So um, it's just kind of amazing how it all unfolded. And, um, you know, it was just the biggest honor of my life, of course. Oh, wow. That's yeah, that's incredible. And I'm glad you asked that question to the second lady, because had you not, if you were me, when they stood up and started and you heard you're, you're just up and you're just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you're, just like, you're like telling the crowd to, you know, get louder and doing the stupid yeah. stuff that I would have done. So I'm glad you asked. I would have done that, too. 
<laughs> no, that's great. Um, what a what a moment. I mean, I I don't know if you have that like a video, you know, somewhere that you can keep and look at occasionally. But no, I think that's important to know that that you were aware enough to stay grounded enough to know that God gave that to you, and then to know that it's your duty now to go and and use that platform, like you said to glorify him and just empower other people with your story. And that's what you're doing. So as we close up shop a little bit here, so what's next for you? What's next down the road and then help the audience kind of track you down to get some of your resources and maybe even book you for a speaking event. Sure thing. So right now, you know, I'm the future is unknown. Like the world is my oyster kind of feel for right now. I, I did write my book, The Hurricane Within. I'm actually working slowly on a second edition where I talk a lot about um, updates and things that have happened since I medically retired. Um, but for now, my primary job is I go around and I get hired to do various speaking engagements, which is so fulfilling to me because every time I go and speak, I always, I feel like I always leave with something more than even I gave my audience. It's just a beautiful thing to share my personal testimony. Mm -hmm. um, so I've been doing that. I just made my, um, my new website is ashleyleppert.com where people can go on there and order an autographed copy of a book or message me um, to inquire about different speaking engagements. Um, I've traveled all over the country. I have um, a busy next few months traveling and speaking different places. So I'm just trying to focus on inspiring as many people as I can. I look around at the world and man, boy, do we need some positivity and inspiration nowadays. And that's all that I try to do. And, and of course, plant seeds of faith along the way. Yeah, uh, it's good stuff. I mean, audience, uh, on behalf of the audience. I want to thank you for being here and, and through your crazy morning that you've had, I appreciate you making time for us and coming off a speaking engagement last night. So I know you're, you probably need a little rest. So thank you for making time for the audience. Uh, it's been a, it's been a blessing, uh, hearing your journey, hearing just some of your, your resilience alone is, is inspiring. And I know somebody got better today. In fact, I know somebody, you met somebody right where they are, if they're dealing with any sort of post, um, you know, military trauma of any kind emotionally, uh, you know, any kind of addiction pot potential. Like I thank you for pouring into those people and audience. She has been Ashley Leppert. We have been last in line. Yeah.